Seltzer Kings podcasts. Oh, come on, Gavin. How good can British cops be? Like Scotland Yard? Not even near Scotland. Yes. The following podcast contains profanity, food jokes, and tired comedy references. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you took script notes from J. Edgar Hoover, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 353, Can't Tell the Cops from the Criminals. It's part one of Copaganda, edition of the show where we talk about how Hollywood helped the cops and the cops helped out Hollywood. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Miranda versus Arizona, who want to remind you to shut the fuck up. We all like to think we're smarter than the cops, but Miranda wants you to know the dumbest thing you can do is actually talk to them. Guilt, innocent, who fucking cares? The best thing you can do is say nothing more than a polite request for a lawyer and refuse to answer any questions. Miranda versus Arizona, keeping the Fifth Amendment working since 1966. Hey, Moran, have you read what it says in here? You kidding, Tony? You know cops can't read. What does incompetent mean? That mayor, he calls me at 2 o'clock in the morning. I mean, I don't even answer the phone anymore. Hey, what does baffles mean? <laughs> there were no cops in my family when I was a kid. There were a few people who might be characterized as, uh... Criminals. No, criminals get arrested. They were more like scofflaws, really. My maternal grandfather might have ran a little moonshine back in his day. None of them big corporate moonshiners. Just small-time stuff to feed the family. I could have had a couple uncles that maybe sold a little grass on the hither and yon. It was the 70s, and it's all small stuff. I say this because there was absolutely no reason in the world why I would become a cop when I did. Now, I've told the story before. I was in the Air Force. My original job didn't come through like I'd hoped, so I was given this list of jobs I was eligible to work in. Drinking scotch isn't a paying job. Oh, if only it was. Oh, I had to fill its five spaces in, and it came with this little pamphlet on what each job was, and I was given 15 minutes to decide what the next few years of my life would revolve around. Maybe. After all, the military could have done pretty much anything with me at that point. I could have just as easily become a shitter inspector third class or something. Because you're certainly qualified. I remember breezing through the pamphlets and listing out four jobs that I was almost certain to never get, and the last one was law enforcement specialist, police work. My entire reason for picking this was I'd seen them growing up, and I knew that some of them worked with dogs, and that sounded fun. Fun aside, the government test I took before I enlisted said that I was best suited for working on planes, <laughs> which anyone who actually knows me thinks and thought was laughable. I can break something just by looking at it, so my, uh, <laughs> me uh, fixing a plane, that that would be a very, very bad idea. Is it supposed to smoke like that? Somehow I got the job in law enforcement, and what was even more unlikely, I actually became a police dog handler. 
But the most unlikely thing of all was I was actually good at the job. Did you hear about that from other people? Yeah, other people said that too. For a few years, people thought I was really going to go all the way, retire from the military, get a job somewhere as a cop, and spend the rest of my life chasing bad guys and being the big damn hero. And how'd that turn out? Well, I do this podcast now, so you can judge for yourself. I think what made me good at being a cop was also the reason I couldn't do it for long, because everything I knew about actually being a cop was based on shit I saw on television, which, uh, pro tip, isn't what being a cop in real life is at all like. You know, it's, it's not like how it is on TV. And all I do all day is I fill out forms and paperwork. I mean, this is what I do. It's a point well taken, Tony, but you must understand, although it's not exciting, it's a very important part of our work. And when I discovered that my life wasn't going to be like NYPD Blue or even Barney Miller, I grew somewhat disaffected. Also, I was surrounded by an awful lot of racists. America has a policing problem. No shit, Sherlock. It is one of our biggest political divides, with the left shouting abolish and defund, and the right shouting blue lives matter, and while this isn't the cause of our desire divide, it's, it's a big symptom of it. I consider myself pretty progressive in most things, and I'm definitely in favor of major reforms on police. I'm also someone who was stabbed a year ago in a random street attack. Yeah, sure, sure, yeah, whatever. Thanks for your concern. So I'm also someone who knows that we need cops around for when, you know, you like get stabbed and shit. This pretty much sums up our national relationships with cops. You've got split personality, schizophrenic GB. And this isn't a show about police reform or the politics of the issue because we don't do those kinds of shows anymore. And if you want one, you can find one in the back catalog. Today's show is about America a culture that hates being told what to do and how it developed a love affair with cops in general. And it begins right here. Hooray for Hollywood. Like everything else with this show, we have to go back to the beginning before we could talk about today. Do you have to? Sadly, yes, because the beginnings of policing in America are, uh, well, let's just say they ain't great. Eastern Kentucky University Online tells us that the earliest police departments in America appeared in the mid-1800s, mimicking the London model of policing, and that's pretty much the same model as policing used today, just updated for the 21st century. But it also tells us that before Boston, New York, Chicago had their police departments, there were other police progenitors that go much further back. Quote, In the southern states, the development of American policing followed a different path. The genesis of the modern police organization in the South is the Slave Patrol. The first, <laughs> Slave Patrol. It sounds like a Ku Klux Klan superhero group. The first formal Slave Patrol was created in the Carolina colonies in 1704. That's before there was an America, y'all. Slave Patrols had three primary functions. One, to chase down, apprehend, and return to their owners runaway slaves. Two, to provide a form of organized terror to deter slave revolts, and three, to maintain a form of discipline for slave workers who were subject to summary justice outside the law if they violated any plantation rules. But following the Civil War, these vigilante-style organizations evolved into modern Southern police departments primarily as a means of controlling freed slaves who were now laborers working in an agricultural caste source system and enforcing Jim Crow segregation laws designed to deny freed slaves equal rights and access to the political system. That is unfortunate. And that is putting it mildly. 
Even in the North, the early police departments were hardly bastions of integrity. Really? Why am I not shocked? It would be unfair for me to say that every policeman, and they were all men, was a corrupt, bribe-taking, government-sectioned gangster for the political machine in power. But it would be fair for me to say that many, if not most of them, were corrupt, bribe-taking, government-sectioned gangsters for the political machine in power. That sounds fair enough. The higher in ranks one rose, the more corrupt one became until you reached the top of the pyramid where the chief was little different than the capo de tutti copy of a mob family, except the chief was Irish. A line item in every criminal ledger included payoffs for the beat cops all the way up to the chief, and they weren't particularly subtle about their corruption. Again, from Eastern Kentucky University, quote, Police also engaged in and helped organize widespread election fraud in their role as political functionaries for the machine. In return, police had virtual carte blanche and use of force and had as their primary business not crime control, but the solicitation and acceptance of bribes. It is incorrect to say that the late 19th and early 20th century police were corrupt. They were, in fact, primary instruments for the creation of corruption in the first place, unquote. This did not go unnoticed by the public. Fuck the cops! Long before NWA sank fuck the police in 1988, the people of major U.S. cities probably had their own versions. Fuck the police! (laughs) The working class immigrant population of northern cities was at least a victim of police apathy if they weren't a victim of outright malice. Down south, you might think things would be different providing, you know, that you were... You are white. But the same problems existed there along with the vicious racism enforced by the police. The local sheriff was and in many cases still is, a political machine of their own, steeped in corruption and graft, a tool of the wealthy class to keep the poor and working class in their place, particularly when it came to the manufacture and distribution of tax-free alcohol. And that was even before Prohibition. There were places in the mountains near my hometown that even up into the 1970s, it was worth a deputy's life if they showed up unannounced. Not that they would ever do that, of course, because they were all taking bribes not to show up there in the first place. The citizenry did not like the police. The cops were widely considered the enemy, not just by the criminal class, but by the poor and working class in general. The same sentiments you hear today in predominantly minority communities echo the complaints from people in the late 19th and early 20th century. The same corruption, same casual racism and brutality, and the same impunity to be corrupt and violent. Same as it ever was. By the early 20th century, there were some efforts at police reform. Spotty and ineffective efforts to be sure, but in general, the idea that police should be openly corrupt fell out of favor, only to be replaced with the idea that police should be quietly corrupt, to put forward the face of staunch supporters of law and order, and to keep their dirty deeds in the shadows. Nothing had really changed, and for years, the public didn't buy it. And that dubious attitude towards the reform police departments was big in the popular culture of the early 20th century. The earliest portrayal of cops on film came in the film of silent movies featuring a wildly incompetent and bumbling police force called the Keystone Cops. Now, I would usually play a clip of the media here, but it's a silent film and all you would hear is music and I get enough copyright hits as it is. You're the scofflaw. The Keystone Cops depicted the police not so much as criminal, but as criminally incompetent, never catching their man and usually crashing, bashing, and blowing up everything around them. They turned the police (laughs) from being feared and despised into laughing socks. 
The cops fucking hated that. And even today, the term Keystone Cops is still tossed around by people that describe some particular bungle by law enforcement. Vox reported in 2020, quote, In 1910, the International Association of Chiefs of Police was moved to adopt a resolution condemning the movie business for the way it depicted police officers. The movies, the IACP complained, made crime look fun and glamorous. Meanwhile, the police were sometimes made to appear ridiculous. From 1914 to 1918, an animated police dog shorts showed a police force unable to prevent an adorable officer Piffles, a good dog, from getting his owner into one scrape after another. And in 1917's Easy Street, Charlie Chaplin's tramp turned police officer was only able to save a girl from a mob of criminals after accidentally sitting on a drug addict's needle and picking up superpowers from the force of the inadvertent injection. Police in popular culture of the 1910s were inept buffoons to be mocked and, well, ridiculed. And the real-life police reacted with outrage. How could the police do their jobs if people thought of them as losers who could be foiled by a cartoon dog, unquote? There are other silent film era productions that feature the cruelty and criminality of police that ruffle the feathers of politicians holding the leashes of the cops to the point where eventually... Needless to say, something must be done. Not about the cops, of course, no, 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 but about these negative portrayals of police in the movies. To be clear, it wasn't just about how Hollywood portrayed cops, but it was folded into the Hayes Code that laid out what and how Hollywood could or could not talk about certain things on film. Span nudity, profanity, sex, and violence, you know, all the cool stuff. But the Hayes, film, uh, Hayes Code also included a caveat that said, quote, attitude towards public characters and institutions, unquote, must be dealt with respectfully. Meaning you couldn't portray politicians and government agencies in a negative or even slightly critical light, or your movie wasn't getting made. And the police were very much included on the list of taboo topics under the code, and that was it for the Keystone Cops and pretty much any critical portrayal of police in movies for several decades. It also opened the door to a new kind of entertainment genre about police and policing, the one that we have today. Now, the audience that watched movies that glorified gangsters in the 1920s didn't go away when the production code came into being. There was still a huge appetite for those kind of stories about crime and criminals, but now the leading man couldn't be a bad guy. In the movies, you could have hard-bitten, hard-drinking detectives, but they were all private dicks. Relax, man. I'm a Brother Seamus. Brother Seamus? Like an Irish monk? You could portray a former cop just one step away from the dark side, but after, active cops were always there to keep him on the right side of the line and to take away the criminal once they'd been properly roughed up by that noirish leading man. What was a poor Hollywood screenwriter to do? I mean, those that weren't on the blacklist for being against Nazis before being against Nazis was cool. Well, if you wanted to get your crime movie made in Hollywood, then your leading man had to be a cop or better yet, a G-Man. Gee, but I'd like to be a G-Man and go bang, 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 bang. I'd be a brave gang-busting he-man and go bang, 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 bang. I'd put on disguises of all different sizes and would I win prizes for telling who spies it? Gee, but I'd like to be a G-Man and go bang, 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 bang. And when you think G-Man, you can only think of the man who was almost definitely wearing a lacy G-string panty. 
J. Edgar Hoover. That's right! From the BeachwoodReporter.com, quote, In the 1930s, Hoover also established a public relations arm within the agency called the Crime Records Division. At the time, the image of the police was sorely in need of rehabilitation thanks to high-profile federal crime commissions that documented widespread violence, suppression, and corruption within police departments. Hoover realized that broadcast media could serve as a perfect vehicle to disseminate his conception of law enforcement and to repair the police's standing with the public. The Crime Records Division cultivated relationships with friendly media owners, producers, and journalists who would reliably endorse the FBI's views. In 1935, the FBI, the FBI partnered with Warner Brothers on the film G-Man. A G-Man radio series followed, made in collaboration with producer Phillips H. Lord, and reviewed personally by J. Edgar Hoover, who checked every statement and made valuable suggestions, according to the series credits. A year later, the FBI worked with Lord again on the radio series Gangbusters. Now in cooperation with police and federal law enforcement departments throughout the United States, the only national program that brings you authentic police case history... Gangbusters! Whose gunshot-filled opening credits boasted the show's cooperation with police and federal law enforcement departments throughout the United States, and his status as the only national program that brings you authentic police case histories, unquote. If your local public cop was a political funky on the take from the criminal underground, which they were, the G-Man was different. Or at least Hollywood, via J. Edgar Hoover, told you that the G-Man was different. In the movies, the G-Man was a stoic soldier of law and order, destroyer of corruption, and ruthless pursuer of the evildoer, be he bootlegger or kidnapper. Hoover's G-Man was on the case. He's just so dreamy. On the radio and the movie screen, America saw the G-Man as the great white savior in America. In reality, the G-Man was, in every sense of the word, an American Gestapo. This time you have gone too far. Some might say so, yes, but when I see an institution that regularly used illegal and blatantly unconstitutional methods to spy upon and arrest citizens engaged in lawful activities simply because of their assumed political beliefs or protected political speech, the difference between the FBI and the Gestapo just, it, it gets a little blurry. And I mean, trying to convince the MLK to commit suicide was bad, sure, but you know, participating in the police execution of the Black Panther leader Fred Hampton that just seems pretty bad to me. That does sound bad. Yeah. Sorry, that was a bit of a discretion. Anyway, J. Edgar Hoover... Why is he in a dress? And his FBI began to cooperate with Hollywood to get the kind of stories they wanted into the minds of Americans, and, and Hollywood cooperated happily so long as the money flowed. The studio moguls gave no fucks about what the message was. From the Washington Post, quote... Hollywood pursued law enforcement agencies, too. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover turned down several potential TV shows before signing on with ABC to create the FBI. Hoover maintained the full script approval and vetted actors' politics before they were cast. The series ran from 1965 to 1974, unquote. And having Hoover... is simply a point 
on their side made the lives for, for Hollywood people much much easier when it came time to, to clean up the occasional mess like a big name Hollywood star murders a prostitute or rapes a 14 year old girl though to be fair that wasn't the FBI that was the Los Angeles Police Department speaking of the LAPD as corrupt corrupt a police department as there's ever been in this country for most if not all of his existence including today that brings us to the godfather of what has been called copaganda. It started out with a little radio show called Dragnet. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. From Timeline.com, Jackie Shine wrote in 2020, quote, When we see a cop on TV, we're seeing the legacy of Dragnet. Everything we think we know about crime and law enforcement and everything we believe about the police bears the imprint of the show. It did no less than fashion the idea of modern policing in our cultural imagination. And, as viewers, we're reminded each week all of it was true. But what most of us don't know is that Dragnet was also calculated propaganda. The Los Angeles Police Department did far more than provide technical assistance, essentially co-producing the show. In the 1950s and 60s, no television drama was so fully saturated in American culture as Dragnet. What began in 1949 as a radio show ultimately blossomed into a sprawling franchise that included a television series from 1951 to 1959 and 1967 to 1969, a comic, a movie, pulp novels, and toys and cereal box prizes. Jack Webb, the show's creator, producer, and lead actor, was profiled in dozens of magazines and newspapers. The clip just the facts demeanor Webb adopted as protagonist sergeant joe friday became a meme before we knew what memes were and the show's weekly case file format almost single-handedly laid the foundation for the next 60 years of procedurals unquote every cop show that has ever existed from 1949 through today is essentially a dragnet spinoff a dragnet grinny reboot or a dragnet parody Dragnet created the genre of police procedurals that dominates television even now. How many fucking law and orders are on the air right now? I don't know. I, I, I looked it up. There were three with another one that are in the works. That's just what is on the air now. That's not counting the previous spinoffs, the CSIs, and whatever, the, the NCI, what the fuck. Ugh. And law and order is just updated Dragnet for the 21st century. And Dragnet, from its inception, was police propaganda. From the Washington Post in 2016, quote, Jack Webb got the idea for Dragnet when he met Marty Wynn, an LAPD detective who was working as a technical advisor from a movie in which Webb played a forensic investigator. In pursuit of the access that would let him market Dragnet as an authentic look of police work, Webb forged an extraordinary partnership with LAPD Chief William Parker. Oh, that fucking guy. The stories you could tell about William Parker, and someday I will. And department publicity wizard Stanley Sheldon accepting stringent censorship from the police department in exchange for story ideas, logistical help, and a patina of truth. That bargain would help create America's first enduring cop drama and a model for police storytelling for decades to come. Webb agreed that the scripts would be formally approved, formally approved by the LAPD's public information division before filming began. The comments weren't advisory. If the department objected to something, such as the depiction of a woman dying from an illegal abortion, the entire episode might be scrapped. In exchange, Webb obtained not only story ideas, but also invaluable financial help from the department, unquote. And <laughs> that's not even mentioning all the free booze he got from cops who wanted to be on Dragnet. 
and Jack Webb loved his free booze. See, there's something to love in everyone, even if you totally loathe everything they stand for. The practical upshot of all this free media is the narrative around cops changed in the minds of Americans. By the mid-1960s, the fixed image of the honest, incorruptible cop bravely standing against the criminal world was pretty much fixed as the national paradigm. Cops were now the good guys as far as the public and Hollywood was concerned, and they always had been as far as the public and the Hollywood remembered. It was a coordinated effort by some of the most powerful people in law enforcement from the federal government all the way down to the LAPD to totally whitewash the history of corruption and violence of police in the United States. It was one of the most effective propaganda campaigns ever fucking waged. Joseph fucking Goebbels would have creamed his crotch to see how well they pulled it off. And no one knew, not even by this time, not even the writers or the directors making the films or television, that they they were making propaganda. He was fucking brilliant. Totally evil, but totally fucking brilliant. Following Dragnet, you had Burke's Law, the FBI, Ironside, Hawaii Five O, Adam 12, Mod Squad, McLeod. Good night, Hartcastle. Good night, McCormick. Good night, Chief. Good night, McLeod. <laughs> and that's just the 60s. I haven't even touched the 70s and 80s because that's for next week, which is where we will pick back up for part two of Copaganda, the golden age of police shows. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. Now, I know that it's wrong to make jokes about men wearing dresses because trans people are people and they deserve respect and human decency unless that trans person is J. Edgar fucking Hoover. There's no proof that Hoover was gay or a cross-dresser, despite the fact of his long-running friendship with Clyde Tolson. But there is proof that Hoover hated the gays with all of his tiny black hearts, so fuck him. I'm a joke about him wearing a dress. Next week, we get much more lighthearted as we talk about all the great show in the 70s that made me think being a cop was cheeky and fun before we wrap up with Hollywood rewriting the bad history with some other bad history that now, I don't know, I guess makes it good history. I, I I don't know these things. I just do a dumb podcast. Speaking of rewriting history, rate and review this show wherever you get your pods so that other people can hear us and realize you must be covering something up for, for just suggesting they listen to a show like this. Support the show at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. All of your donations go to the former policeman's benevolent fund, by which I mean you buy liquor for a former cop trying to atone for all of his wrongs by ripping the shit out of the police today. Do all the things that Jeremy tells you to do in the closer. Otherwise, you know, we might have to write you up for those multiple infractions on your vehicle there. So for me, Dave, come out, ye black and tans. Come out and fight me like a man. Bledsoe, Constable Inspector. No, no, I, I refuse to say. I, I just won't. I won't say. I won't. I Tell them how the IRA made you run like hell away. God, I hate you. Gavin, and all the fictional Keystone cops on this show, we want to say that yelling fuck the police is not a great idea considering they will probably beat the shit out of you. We'll see you all next week.
What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Captain, when I joined the police force, I thought that I was going to be Serpico, but instead I'm like, I'm like fish from Barney Miller. Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.